And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Stop it! Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go! I got nowhere else to go! I got nothing else. Hey, Jeff, how you doing? Alright, how about you? Alright. I normally don't put on my camera just because I don't think people want to look at me. <laughs> That's fine. Do I have it there? <coughs> How you doing, man? Doing good. How about you? Uh, Since we had a chance to talk. Indeed. Uh, you know, it's uh, everything's still crazy. Everything, you know, I'm very happy to have been employed the whole time. Uh, same, but, I've, same I've, I've, but I've got people furloughed, so, uh, you know, a lot of extra hours. But uh, I got to say, it made uh, uh, Overstreet at 50 comes out next week, and uh, I'm very, very happy with the way it turned out. And I just had a really fantastic call with Bob and Carol Overstreet tonight who are just thrilled. Uh, like literally to the point that all the grandkids and great grandkids are getting it as their Christmas gift. Uh, <laughs> like I mean, literally Bob ordered 33 copies today. <laughs> That's terrific. So, I mean, it's exact. you know, it's supposed to, it's, it is my very heartfelt thank you letter to Bob for everything that he's done. And uh, unlike a lot of our books, I was simply the driving force behind this one. So it was really, uh, uh, really great to hear it received that way. Well, the ones you were generous enough to have sent to me or sent to me, yeah. uh, that's the one that I've been paging through the most so far. I, I, I've got to see, the, the fun part for me is when you have a uh, book in your head and the finished product is like what it was in your head. Mm. You know, it, it, I can imagine that that often doesn't work out. But before oh, yeah. we get into this too far, because yeah. we're going to keep going, and I know oh, yeah. every time you and I have ever gotten into a conversation, it just kind of rolls. Yeah. So let me just say hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spitaro, and today I have a special guest with me, Mr. Jeffrey or JC, depending on how you want to uh, greet him, Vaughn. Uh, Jeff is a, is a comic writer who has – that I have experience with uh, through his writing of uh, Zombie Proof, uh, what is it, Vampire, Vampire Pennsylvania, yep. uh, McCandles and Company, which are all original properties and bedtime yep. stories for impressionable youngsters. But then there are licensed products too, which I find interesting, and I want to. I'm going to want to talk to you about that because sure. there's 24, there's Stargate, which. Uh, I'm not, you and I have discussed, I'm not really a big follower of Stargate, but I'm still interested in hearing more about it. And then one of the fascinating things, which I had not realized until for some reason I was just looking, uh, the Three Stooges book that you wrote, uh, the artist on that was John, John Pinto. uh, The cover artist. Oh, just the cover? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, the artist is strangely enough how it worked out. 
the artists on my one story that I've contributed so far were uh, Brendan and Brian Frame, who uh, I've worked with on Antiques, the comic strip, and on mm-hmm. Vampire PA, and on an online strip uh, called The Flight. Uh, so uh, I've the reason I uh, the reason I brought up John is because I didn't realize you worked with him. Uh, m- one of my co-hosts on this show, Scott Gardner, uh, has been a big, big supporter and fan of John's work. Uh, to the point where last year, when we actually had a New York Comic Con, he had me seek out John, and I did, and I went and I was talking to him. Great guy, first of all. And wow, what what work! I, I have now I have a, his uh, Saturday Evening Post Raiders of the Lost Ark cover hanging in my basement. You know, I think that's great. I think that's great. I love that Stooges cover, and yeah, it is really uh, good. I think it was really really cool. I think he also did. There were a You'll forgive me, but on the Stargate comics, there there were uh, about a million and a half variants. I think he did one of them, too. He's he's an artist who, from the work that I've seen, is – well, I think you you know you have a habit of finding people like this. Just really, really good, but not a household name. Yeah, I, I got I to say, in this case, that's all I'm uh, I, I found them the interior artist, and it's funny – the uh, when I approached the frames about doing uh, the Three Stooges, uh, they're like, "How will that work in comics?" And they turned out to be the backbone of the Three Stooges comics for American mythology, and they've had at least a story in every issue. Mm-hmm. So that's terrific. So, but like again, like I said, I want to talk to you a little bit about licensed products. But I think first and foremost, I want I want to get the business out of the way, and I think you have some business that's going on right now. Uh, and and what what I want to encourage everybody who's listening to do is listen to the whole show, because if you're not familiar with Jeff, you will be by the time the show is over. Uh, he does terrific work, but I want to make sure that we get right right up front. He's got a Kickstarter going. And, uh, Indiegogo. Uh, Indiegogo. And I'd like to, to hear about that. Yeah. Okay. It's it's uh, Indiegogo from a Candleson company. Uh, it's a it's a comic called Crime Scenes which is four uh, shorter tales uh, by four separate artists. Uh, and then there's one, well, actually, it's five shorter tales by four artists. And they are all different in tone, both in terms of the art and in terms of the story. And they were all created, well, four of the five were created um, very early in my career and were part of a trade paperback that was really just seriously poorly printed and all I could offer most of these guys at the time, uh, Gene Gonzalez, Harry Roland, uh, Ben Dale and Chris Chua was that I would promote them. You know, that I, I, the one thing I already knew that I could do in comics by that point, I was, you know, I was already at Overstreet for a few years. I knew I could network like crazy and I'm very good about hooking people up with other creators and getting them further along than they would be just working without me. And it was the one thing I could promise. I couldn't promise riches. I couldn't promise fame. I couldn't promise even a good lunch. But <laughs> uh, I, I got these guys. Um, uh, Chris and Ben in particular were at the very earliest stages of their careers. And uh, Harry was just coming back into comics. He had done famous Monsters covers in the past, some you know, some really memorable stuff. And and Gene I had worked with for, for a few years. Um, so, but... You know, everybody knew that I would just do my best to promote them as best I could. And I was real excited to have this trade paperback, and the printing was just horrible. 
And, you know, I, no, no finger pointing. It was just the, the company I was working with did it, picked a bad printer. And they, I mean, literally down to leaving off the inside front and inside back covers. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so it's always bugged me that those things didn't get a decent printing. Uh, a few years ago, American Mythology uh, took the longer form story that Gene Gonzalez and I did called McCandless and Company Insecurities, and they printed it uh, and did a beautiful job with it. Uh, you know, we were able to give it a, a great Mike Olming cover uh, and, and a couple other pieces uh, because, you know, everybody has too many variants. Uh, and uh, it really it re I was very happy. But that even just sort of made it worse that I hadn't delivered for these other guys. Uh, yeah. And 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 I really wanted to do that. So finally, I got around to where uh, I have a I have a great cover from Billy Tucci. Uh, I have a uh, great cover from uh, Amanda Connor and Jimmy Palmiotti that Chris Sotomayor just colored for us. And, uh, and by the way, uh, Wes Hartman colored Billy's and they're, they're just, they're gorgeous. Yeah. I, I mean, I've seen it on the uh, Kickstarter page that you gave to me and then I put it on the back to the bins page as yeah. well as my own Facebook page. And you could see, you know, anybody listening to this can click on that and check it out. And they are beautiful. I mean, how do you do much better than Billy Tucci and Amanda Connor and Jimmy Palmiotti? I mean, they, you know, they're great. This is, this is the, the fortunate thing uh, about, you know, having great friends doesn't put money in your bank, but it's the stuff that you, you, you I'm, I'm picking the wrong word. It's the stuff that really makes life worth living. You know, it just, it, it's just, you have a great, I, I, there's no other way to put it. I've been blessed, man. I, I, I work hard at it and I get to know all these people. I have a, a you know, fantastic job with uh, Gemstone Publishing, but I love creating comics. And when I can reach out to somebody like an Amanda Connor or a Billy Tucci to do a cover and they say, yes, well, you'd have to be an idiot not to take it, you know? And uh, I, like I said, I absolutely feel blessed in that regard to the people that I can pick up the phone or shoot an email to. And and it, it's it shows in this book of the people that you work with. I mean, Jimmy and Amanda, Billy, uh, Vince Spencer, John Pinto, we mentioned. Now, these are people who I've had a chance, every one of them to get acquainted with, have some lengthy conversations at times. And they all are. They, they, not only are they all supremely talented, but they are genuinely good people who, you know, you know the creators who are out there who just, you know, like when they go to the convention, they go because they need the exposure, and that's the only reason they're there. These are people who, like yourself, seem to have a true love for the industry and to have a kinship with those of us who don't have as much talent uh, and, and, and can, you know, can, no, can no, hold no, a no, conversation no. with us. Whose talents lie in other directions. <laughs> you know what? I'll, I'll take that, but I think it's extremely generous of you, so we'll just run with that. Uh, but, you know, you know, that's to me, when I go to New York Comic Con or like where, you know, where we first became acquainted over at Best Comics. Right. Uh, and when I, when I had a chance to meet guys like you and not only just. You know, it's it's not. Hey, could you sign this? And then I'm leaving. It's holding a, a legitimate conversation. It's it's you know, and, and actually forging a relationship, uh, which which just makes it all the better. It's it's not only am I getting to to read comics that I enjoy, but I'm being I'm, I could say, hey, you know what? The guy who wrote that that guy's my friend, 
and and it's it's kind of cool to do that. It it, it 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 I I hope in the end more than kind of, uh, because in all seriousness, I've got a, a, a bookshelf behind me, and three three and a half of the shelves are just books by my close friends. You know, I've got three other bookcases in in the other rooms of everybody else's stuff, and it's I I love that too. But I love the fact that I know some some phenomenally creative guys that are my friends. I, I Billy and I had this discussion a long time ago, uh, and it, and it basically goes like this: If you bust your ass and put out a good comic, it can be print on demand, it could be you know small press, it could be a moderate hit, it could be a big hit for a moment. And they sit you at a table at a convention and you're next to a veteran like Jim Shooter or Don McGregor or anybody else. Man, in comics, they're so egalitarian that if you did a good job and that creator likes your book and if you had that same instance in film, you go out, you make an indie film and it's a big hit. Are you hanging out with Spielberg? You know, no offense to Steven Spielberg. I love his movies, but you're not hanging out with him. That's ridiculous. You know, that's the upper echelon. That's money, money, money. And comics are too egalitarian, man. It's great. You're yeah. just, you you're, you were just, and, and the overwhelming number of creators will treat you like one of their own. And that's, a, but, that's the greatest part about it, man. And that brings to mind, you know, you mentioned Jim Shooter when, uh, you know, when you did uh, bedtime, bedtime stories for impressionable children, and then I come by Best Comics because, uh, you know, Tommy, uh, yeah. God bless his soul, we lost Tommy yeah. this year, so it's very sad, uh, who was the owner of Best Comics. But uh, Tommy, you know, sends out an email saying, hey, Jeff Warren's going to be there on Wednesday afternoon. So I said, oh, you know what? Jeff said, let me take a ride over. And I, and I walk in, and, and who's sitting next to you but Jim Shooter, who's every bit as approachable and every bit, of, you know, a good guy himself. Yeah, Jim and uh, Joe James. As a matter of fact, oh, yeah. uh, to, to get back to the business at hand, I did just add 15 of those signed copies uh, as add-on incentives for the Indiegogo campaign for McCandless and Company crime scenes. Uh, so if people want to get them, uh, the, the signing that we did that day, man, that was 2017. Can you believe that? Oh, boy, the time flies. It really it does. does. It does. But, uh, but uh, you know, the, the great thing is that – I find a lot of people are like that. As a matter of fact, matter of fact, I will. I increasingly don't have the time of day for the people who aren't like that. And, yeah. and yeah, you know what? It, it as as we age, and oh, you yeah. and I are about, and you and I are about the same age. As as we age, I find that I have less patience for people who are not like that. Yeah, because this life is too short to waste your time on people who who aren't you know. Yeah, approachable, I can, let's say. I, listen, listen, I can separate I can separate the creator from the work in many instances, but if I've had firsthand experience with somebody and they're and they're they're really a jerk, not even to me, but but I see them be jerked jerks to fans, I really have uh, I totally admit a bit of trouble getting over that. And we had we had a uh, a show here where I kind of did a uh, a rant and uh 
I don't even know if you if, if I've ever discussed this with you, but I do an annual fundraiser for pancreatic cancer because I lost a, a family member to pancreatic cancer. Okay. And when Facebook was, I mean, it was popular already. So, you know, sometime in the last 10 years, I don't even remember exactly when, but it was a while ago. And I, and I sent out messages to all the creators that I had uh, forged friends on fr Facebook with. And I said, you know, would anybody be interested in maybe donating anything uh, that I can put in, you know, if people, if people donate to my fundraiser, I can give them out as, as gifts to people who donate. And some of the people were terrific. I would say the guy who, who probably was uh, above and beyond the most was uh, Jimmy Palmiotti, who sent me the name of an agent that he worked with and said, tell him that Jimmy said to give you, you know, whatever. I don't even remember what it was, but he says, you know, just tell him that I said to give you this and he'll send them over to you and you can give them out to anybody who donates. And I thought that that was really terrific. And then there were others. So, who that, just, that, sound, that sounds like Jimmy. Totally. There were others who, you know, who respectfully declined, and I have no problem with that either. But there were a couple that were like almost out and out nasty in their responses, and I can only I, assume that they're thinking, "Oh, he's trying to take advantage of me, get something, and then sell it on eBay or whatever." Uh, at which point, I still think the right thing to do was to respectfully decline. Yeah. But that really that soured me on on the creator in particular, who was exceptionally nasty to me. And I'm not going to mention his name at this point, because why do that? I agree. Uh, but there is an element of, you know, if if you like someone and you like their work, <laughs> it, it just makes it makes the combination all the better. And there, there are people who I've met over the years who I, who I wasn't really that fond of their work, but I met them at conventions and they were just like the nicest people. And then I feel really guilty for not liking their work so much. And when we <laughs> review a book, it's like uh, I'll give you one example because he, he was absolutely a, a, a prince of a man when I met him, but I've just never been fond of his work was Carmine Infantino. I've just never really been a big fan of his work, but I met him at a convention. He was such a nice guy that now I feel guilty for not liking his work. I had the nicest note from Carmine after I put him in the Overstreet Hall of Fame. And I was not – I am not one of those people who was super enamored of his Flash. You know, that's a, a lot of people who are Carmine fans are big on the Flash. I actually really liked his work at Marvel, which is just a weird thing to say unless you were in that certain era where it was Nova or Star Wars. And yeah, well, let's. I know the people who love Star Wars swear by him. I was never big on the Star Wars comics, so maybe that's the thing. But I did not like his work on Nova. But uh, it was sort of it was sort of funny, and uh, uh, I would probably be a lot more open to it now than I was then, uh, the, the flash stuff and things like that. Uh, as, uh, I've pushed artists to get a little more stylized on some stuff that I've written. Uh, not that's, that's an area where it's not the licensed stuff. Uh, cause that you want it to look as close to what people are expecting as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but it's always, it's always interesting. And of course, you know, Carmine was a publisher, so he hired and fired people. And so his job was hacking people off. And uh, you can when you're in that role, you do that for long enough and you probably want to be liked by somebody. And so maybe that's why he was such a sweetheart later. Uh, I have no idea. Absolutely. I really was when I met him. Meeting him uh, and talking with him, it was, it was a super experience. 
Well, the one thing I wouldn't have said meeting him was, hey, uh, it's nice to meet you. I never liked your work. You know, that's not something you generally say. Uh, you know, I shook his hand. I, I thanked him for his work, and, and I spoke to him for a few minutes, and uh, he's ab- absolutely, you know, very uh, welcoming, put it that yeah, way. Yeah, let's face it. He was the DC half of getting Superman Spider-Man done. That is you true. Know, well, it wasn't the, wasn't the artist, but he was the publisher. Yeah. Well, what's her name? Uh, Jeanette Kahn was big on that, wasn't she, on the DC? He was after that. Really? I, think I don't know why. I, th- I, know, I, I could, could be wrong on that, but I thought she was involved in the... Uh... That was 76, 77, and I think she would have come in right after that. This is worth looking up, though. Yeah, well, I'm going to try and do that. And while, while I'm trying to do that, I'd like you to tell everybody a little bit about McCandles and Company, uh, since, sure. that's, since that's Absolutely. the uh, Kickstarter. The, the main thing about that, uh, Paul and everyone, is it's the story of two strong-willed, intelligent, female private investigators, Carrie McCandless and Jessica Williams. They are best friends who met in college and went to work for a large private investigation firm and were just being treated like clerical people. And so they solved a big crime and didn't get credit for it, so they quit and formed their own agency. And... They uh, hired a young guy, a writer named David Bradshaw, who wants to basically save up enough money to take off a year and write. And uh, they solve crimes and they don't always get along because they are very opinionated. And uh, it started uh, as a short story early in college. And it's just one of those things that stuck with me. And uh, as I love mysteries uh, they've never really faded from my uh, from my imagination. So revisiting them right now, uh, I'm talking with my uh, editor, Jason Odom, and uh, Mike Soloff, who's uh, been my partner on several of these projects, uh, about actually doing a, a brand new McCandless story uh, because I know what the next one is, and so uh, uh, we we may do that. But this 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 Indiegogo uh, project is definitely a pathway to that. Uh, we've also included with this an opportunity to get a, a new special edition of McCandless and Company Insecurities, which is the one American Mythology put out, uh, with a brand new cover, amazing cover, uh, by James Nelms, who's done some of the bedtime stories for Impressionable Children covers for me. Now, the, uh, the previous uh, publication on Insecurities... I'm trying to remember. Was that a Kickstarter or did I just get that at best? I it was not. Because I do it, have it. it. Was, well, it was a, it was a, an, a Kickstarter attempt. Um, I did a this is this was a lesson to be learned for me. I did a short one, like a two week one, and a good friend's daughter uh, passed away right in the middle of it, and I just shut down. Uh, I just I how could I go out and hawk a book? Uh, and that, and that's the thing. That's that is the thing about this. You are, you got to be in selling mode, every every spare moment. I mean, I have a job to do, so I can't do it during that. But other than that, when I get up in the morning, when I'm done with the job at the end of the end of the day, I'm in I'm in selling mode, and that's part that's part of how these things go. Well, and I do see this. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. I do see this as really a labor of love for you because I remember. At Eternal Con, and I think it, it was either the first or second Eternal Con, you were there, and I came by, and I was talking to you, and you were showing me uh, 
you know, sketches and, and drawings from years and years ago. Oh, yeah. With this. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, and saying absolutely. that you, you were looking to get this printed. And then that's what made me inspired that I wanted to get insecurities when it came out. And, and, and American mythology was great. They they didn't care that the the uh, I mean, they probably would have liked the Kickstarter to make some money and subsidize the book. But in truth, they uh, they published it anyway. Uh, and like I said, that was I was really happy with that. And um, but, yeah, some of the materials, some of the materials old uh, from like earliest days of me creating comics. Uh, and, you know, but I still love it. I still think it's good. And, you know, in the case, like I said, of this, I'm just hell bent on getting these guys a decent printing. I mean, Harry, Harry passed away a couple years after we did the story. And that just that just hangs on me even more, you know, about the, the fact that this it's one of his last comic works. It needs it. I, I want people to see it. Uh, and I want it to be, I want it to be I want it to be good when they do see it. So now uh, let's let's talk a little just a bit about your background. How did, now was Overstreet your first comic job or did you do things in comics before that? I worked in the mail order department for Lone Star Comics uh, before they sold their mail order to uh, Chuck Rosansky and Mile High Comics. Um, it was a new issue service called Nice. New issue Club Express or something like that. Uh, and uh, uh, Chuck came to town, and the next thing you know, a bunch of us were laid off. Uh, it didn't stop uh, Buddy Saunders, who is one of the one of the great retailers in all of comics. Uh, Buddy, uh, when his non-compete expired, got back in, and you got to think that he's probably the number one retailer online now, mycomicshop.com. Oh, yeah. uh, and interestingly enough, uh, my, so he's my first boss in comics, right? He advertised in the second printing of Overstreet number one, uh, and he's the so back cover. Years ago. And he's the back cover advertiser on Overstreet fifty. And if you think about that, that guy's been advertising with Overstreet for fifty years. Started selling comics when he was a teenager and has never stopped and has always worked to do it better. So I'm a big I'm a big fan of his, uh, even though I got laid off there. Uh, uh, I've also said that, you know, the, the fun thing is I've been doing mail order from them uh, before I worked there and since I since I moved. Uh, so I've been doing mail order with them for you know, coming up on. Uh, Let's not talk about how many years. Uh, and 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 I always am thinking, oh, this is the box that's gonna that, that I'm gonna have to return something because it's damaged. And it's something that, that my sister company, uh, two of my sister companies, Diamond Galleries and Hakes Auctions, um, pride themselves on that nobody ever gets anything damaged from them. The box can be beat to hell, and certainly the courier services are trying to do that right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I got, but I got one in from uh, mycomicshop.com a couple weeks ago, and I thought, ah, it's, this is it, this is it. This box is beat to crap. Open it up, comics were perfect inside. There you go. So, that, so now, how long were you doing that before you went to over? Oh, I was only there. I was only there for a few months. Uh, you're you're at Gemstone for what, 25 years? Yeah, 25 years. Uh, so absolutely. Basically, half of the Overstreet run. Yeah, yeah. Little, little over. I'm like 25 and a half. 
uh, and uh, uh, I uh, was I started a, a career. I started working for Avis Rent-A-Car. I did that at Dallas-Fort Worth Airport for almost 12 years. About a year before I left, I got afraid not to do what I wanted to do, which was writing, and started uh, freelancing. One of the places I freelanced for was Overstreet Publications and started selling them stuff regularly. Really, you know, like, oh, this is it. I've got my foot in the door. And then, then all of a sudden the company got sold. Bob sold it to Steve Jeppy, and I knew Steve's name, but I didn't really know a whole lot about what he did other than a lot of comics had Jeppy's Comic World ads on the back covers. Um, and uh, I uh, ended up getting a chance to interview for a staff position. And I flew up for that and uh, met with Carol Overstreet. And, you know, the, the standard joke is, uh, uh, I you know, Carol Overstreet hired me. I've decided to forgive her. <laughs> Now, I, my experience with the price guide goes back to, and it's funny because I was going through the, the, the five decades of Overstreet Comics. Yeah. And I was looking back and I, like, I couldn't remember, but I guess the first edition that I purchased was the fifth. The one with the Joe oh, Hubert wow. Tar, Tarzan cover. Tarzan cover. That's a great one to start with, man. And I remember because I, I had no sense of reality at that point or sense of time, but there was a comic store. Not that far from me, because we did have comic stores back in the 70s, even though nobody seems to remember that. Uh, and I remember I had my mom was going somewhere and I had her drop me off there because it was, you know, a, a decent distance away. So it's like, I'll have her drop me off. I'll pick up the book and then I'll walk home. The only thing is I had no sense of what time the store opened. And I, I remember I had her drop me off and it was like two hours before the store opened. So I had to basically kill two hours somehow until I could get in there because I was so anxious to buy this price guide. And, and you know, it, it was just such an exciting experience at the time to sit there and what collection I had in 1975, which, you know, there was a decent number of books that I still I had picked up, but sitting and looking up each one of them to see what it's worth and, and to, you know, to, to see how I was going to be a millionaire one did day. You just, did you just pour over the ads and all the information in the book? That's what we did. Uh, the first one I saw was number six. I don't think I, I don't think my 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 comic buying allowance was ever enough that I could buy get one until number eight. Oh, I saved up for it. It wasn't like I had that in you know in one week. But uh, you know, I was talking to my buddy Scott who was going to try and be with us on us on with us tonight, but he he had to bail uh, for unrelated reasons. But uh, we were talking about it, and he was talking about how the the Overstreet Price Guide was. The you know the source of information at one time. Sure. And uh, he you know we we both have a little bit of a problem with when you go into a comic store and you pick out the books you want to buy and then you go up to the counter and they pull out the Overstreet and they say well this one it says it's worth this so that's what I'm charging you and this one says it's worth this and that's what I'm charging you and and what Scott said when we were talking about it the other day and I thought it was kind of on the money is it's a price guide it's not a price you know, Bible. It doesn't say absolutely this is the price you should be getting for every book. It's giving you an idea of which books are going to be hotter, which books aren't. You know, but you know, I I always have. Yeah, you can seen, actually you know, actually literally read that information on the on the on the back of the title page on the Indicia page. Uh, it's just absolutely. We are a price guide. We are not a price list. 
Exactly. And, and, uh, and there will be there will be things that we are way low on. There will be things that we are way high on. Well, not a whole lot that we're way high on, but there will be. And there will be things that are hot at the moment. And by the time the next guide comes around, we're right on. Because, you know, Bob's never chased the trends. Uh, we had a, a guy, uh, a retailer, uh, get up at our 40th anniversary panel at San Diego and imply that we were price fixing and you'll understand in the litigious age that we live in and the fact that we're, we're in the era of five, six and now seven figure comics, that that's a serious accusation. And so I'm sitting up on the, uh, on, on, on the panel with Mark Huseman, who's our creative director and, I think, I think we might have had we might have had Steve Borok and Maggie Thompson with us, and maybe maybe Matt Nelson from CGC. Uh, Matt's been on a lot of panels, so that's why I'm sort of blanking whether he was there or not. Uh, but so I'm sort of in my head trying to formulate a political response to this without, you know, taking out a spear gun and shooting the guy. And the guy in the audience raises his hand and says, could I address that? And I'm like, yeah, please. You know, in my head, I'm saying, please, okay, buy me some time to put it together a good answer. The guy stands up and he says, hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm, I'm a scientist at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory for NASA. And I've studied the guide for 40 years. And over that time, while it may be wrong from time to time, it's almost always right over time. And that was like the greatest experience because the guy just like sort of sat, the, the guy in the back just sort of <laughs> sat down and I was like, OK, uh, next question. But, you know, the, the reality is. And, and any, anybody who frequents comic shops is going to know this. The reality is just because a book has a, you know, put in air quotes value. Yeah. Doesn't mean you can turn around tomorrow and get that value. No, 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 no. That's absolutely, that's absolutely I mean, true. anybody who goes to the comic store sees, you know, the expensive books on the wall, and some of them stay on the wall for, for two years, three years, four the years, first, before somebody comes along who wants to buy it at that price. There it, has been a sea change in that with the last decade and a half of CGC and now CBCS in terms of the speed of available liquidity. This has this has dynamically changed the marketplace, but it hasn't changed everything about it, and it hasn't meant instantaneous cash. This is not taking a, your stock certificate and cashing it in and saying it's worth this. Exactly. It's still there's still wheeling and dealing. There's still horse trading, and listen, you may have that book where somebody says instantly they'll give you money for it, and that same book the next week may not be the same thing. So that's that's just how it goes. Now, I'm, I'm going to not put this on anybody else but myself. I'll take ownership of this. But on this show, we've criticized CGC uh, to a great extent. And part of the thing is we are comic book lovers. And the idea of having your book slabbed so that you can no longer open it and enjoy it is a little bit repulsive to us. And... 
it almost feels like it's a manufactured marketplace that just doesn't feel right for the point of comics that I love. Yeah, I get that. I, I, I totally get that. I'm sort of the guy in the middle. Um, I, I get both. Uh, I absolutely am a comic book reader. I, I jokingly refer to myself as the Overstreet Staff Heretic because I regularly trade comics for trade paperbacks and hardcovers because I don't mind putting them on scanners when I'm doing an article. You know, and you know, you take a nice Silver Age book, or I, I only have one Golden Age book right now, and I might I'd put it I'd put it on a I'd put it on a scanner to scan the cover, but I'm not opening that up and laying it flat and putting and closing a scanner on it, right? Right. Um. Uh. So I've always had this thing like anything that I have CGC or CBCS certified, I have a reader copy, and the need for it in the marketplace, I I do not question at all. I know what it was like before them. You have certain guys who they may grade a half grade high, half grade low, but you could buy a book over the phone from them. They are that consistent. And then you have people who think they're that consistent and their grades are off by three or four grades. I mean, and it, it was... It was the Wild West before these things are out there. Now you're buying something that somebody says, and we can nitpick about do they always get it right? No. Why? Human beings are involved. Um, but I think it's made it where it is more financially liquid to have high-grade comics now with the advent of those things. But I can tell you, most of the serious comic fans that I know, the the old school guys, I should say, want uncertified comics. And it's a bit of a hunt at times. That's okay. It's I, to me, there's room there's room for all of it. Like like I alluded to there, I'm a I'm a trade paperback guy. So I want to have a really nice copy of, you know, let's use this absurd example, action one, but it's in a book, you know, uh -huh. it, 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 it's, uh, I'm not going to be one of the guys rolling out $3.2 million. And what? so I, I, there, there are issues I have with certification, uh, that are exactly what you said, which is, Hey, I want to be able to read them. I deal with that by, I always have a reader copy. And, and I can understand to some extent because I do have books in my collection. Uh, a listener to the show was kind enough to send me copies, and they are, you know, what we call WTS, whip to shit. Uh, but he sent me copies of Spider-Man number 10 and 11. Wow, nice. Uh, you know, it was it was absolutely, uh, you know, it was great. And I have copies of Giant Size X-Men number one, and I have a copy of Spider-Man 129, and I have a copy of Hulk 181. And I really don't have any desire to take these out of the <laughs> out, out, out of the bags and boards that they're in because I'm concerned about degrading them more than they already are, sure. uh, no, no matter which condition they're at. So I kind of understand the value in some ways of having those books slabbed because now they're preserved and they're not going to get in any worse condition. But I still have some reluctance to ever do that. I, I don't know. I, I don't see myself. I, I, let me. Forward. Let me. Let me. I'll give you. I'll give you some examples. Um, I love having 
uh, a copy of my books done that way uh, and being signature series. First off, there's a there's an ego stroke involved there that I would not deny. Secondly, I like that. Uh, Thirdly. It's sort of fun knowing that the data is in their system correctly so that they can identify this cover or that cover, this edition or that edition. I, I, I like that. That that's probably why I'm a price guide guy is, you know, cause I want I want things to be correct. Hmm. Uh, uh, that kind of stuff. The other thing, and, and this is where I've, uh, done a few books with CBCS that I couldn't have done with CGC is that they have an independent party that will verify signatures that were not witnessed. And so my Mickey Spillane's Mike Danger number one that is personalized and signed to me uh, by Mickey Spillane. I couldn't get that anymore because Mickey passed away a long time ago. So that was a real treat to me was being able to being able to get that certified. Um, So. You know, it's not an expensive book, so that's definitely, you know, there's definitely a reader copy to go along with this, the the, uh, the the certified issue. Um, now, did you sign it on the cover or inside? Oh, yeah. Yeah, signed it on the cover, and so did Max Allen Collins, uh, who wrote it. Because it really does seem like a shame to me if you're going to slab it and the, the signature is inside the book. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's, it's sort of like that. And, I, you know, listen, I've got very dear friends who think it's a Holocaust if you actually let somebody sign your comic, you know, they're, they're just absolute purists and, and I get it. I respect it. I think the world's big enough for all of us. And, uh, you know, we go from there. That's fair enough. And yeah, I, you know, the thing to me and I, and I, you know, I think I'm, I'm not breaking new ground here, but I feel like we get into trouble when, uh, when people view, except for comic store owners, uh, when they view it as more of a business than it is, you know, a, a something that they're passionate about in and of itself. And I think even most comic book store owners are passionate about the comics or they would have gone into some other business anyway. Yeah, I think that that's I think that those are fair observations. The one thing I would say is we absolutely need some people viewing this as a commodity. Uh, again, this is my my theory. If it takes all kinds, uh, you need somebody who is just super passionate about. If you're a retailer, you need somebody that's super passionate about every comic that you carry. You know, uh, you need somebody that's super passionate behind the register selling. You know, when you go into a place, I always remember this from from record stores back in the day. Like their their idea of sales was looking looking at you, going, oh, "You're still listening to that?" <laughs> and you know, there's a lot of comic shops early early days, man. We're we're just like that. Well, un- unfortunately, the uh, comic book guy on The Simpsons is. Uh, a stereotype where most of us have met somebody like yeah. that in our lives. I golly, I haven't. Oh wait, yeah. <laughs> now, yeah. What, what's that? What was the comic store in Pittsburgh? And I know I was there a couple of years ago, and I posted something. You, you had responded. Ides. Oh, that's a great store. Yeah, that is a good store. I actually mentioned Ides on the very last page of Overstreet at fifty, uh, because that's where I first saw the Overstreet Guide. I haven't gotten that far into it yet. Uh, for for anybody listening, Jeff was kind enough to send me Overstreet at 50, which you said didn't even come out yet. 
No, it comes out next Wednesday. Yeah, so that makes me feel even more special. You know what's As, really what's really cool about that? This is sort of a, a bizarre little treat for uh, those of us on the on the staff that we could actually send out review copies ahead of time because we're always hyper conscious of pricing data getting out as close to it at the same time as possible. So we can, we don't send out advanced copies of the guide, mm-hmm. but this book doesn't have pricing data, so we were able to do that. Well, but there is also the 50th edition of the book, yes. uh, the, Over, the Overstreet comic book price guide, which, my God, it's gotten heavy in these last 45 yeah. years. I mean, <laughs> let me tell you the, the scary thing. I think that's I think that's either forty either forty eight or sixty four pages shorter than last year's. Wow. Yeah. And and you know the first thing that jumped out at me as I you know started to sift through that a little bit is I'm used to uh, what was it mint near mint fine good and fine but now we have good very good fine very fine. Very fine slash near mint, and then near mint. I guess it's near mint. Actually, near mint, near mint minus. Near mint minus. So, so I, I guess there's a, a uh, an understanding right off the bat that as soon as the book hits the uh, the shelves, it's no there's no longer such thing as truly mint. Well, that actually that definition actually got dropped in the gu- the mint definition got dropped in the guide a long time ago, but the near mint. Um, and this this goes back to what you were saying about uh, the the certified comics, the volatility of the prices above nine point two have really put us in the role of being uh, a denominator in a math equation, uh, because the right books are so volatile that it's just booming, and yet go down to nine point two and lower, they're not nearly as volatile. So it's much more it's much more instructive of the situation to do what we've done in that case. Um, and, uh, you know, there are going to be ways to address this in the in the future. Uh, but right now it's a it's a steady course, which is which is um, in keeping with what Bob's done over the years. And I, I remember, you know, back keep going back to the 70s when I was a kid going to a comic book store and uh the store that was closest to my house over on Nostrand Avenue in Brooklyn. Uh, I don't even remember what it was called in the back at the, you know, what the name of the store was, but the owner there would be very, very quick to declare that every back issue you were looking to buy from him was in mint. And, uh, <laughs> and, 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 and I, you know, even, even at that age, you know, preteen, I was able to look at them and say, that's not mint. Look at look at the little crease there in the corner. What is that? You know, and, and he would just, oh, that's nothing. That's 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 so minimal. It doesn't matter. Yeah, that's not mint. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And that yeah. always bothered me to this day. You know, there's 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 things. Well, that's what makes us comic book fans. The phrase get over it has no meaning to us. <laughs> That, that happens to be that I guess uh, I just gave you the best example of that that I could right now. Yeah. Uh, you know what? It's whatever. Forty some odd years later, yeah, and I'm still, well, I, still I was, fuming over it. I was uh, complaining. You know, I was asked uh, uh, by a good friend of mine, "What are my? Who are my favorite teachers at any level?" And I said, "Well, I would have said Mrs. Mahaffey in, in fourth grade, except on a test." She asked, which way would you go to Hong Kong, east or west? 
And I put West and she marked it wrong. And I, and I went up to her and I said, we went West. And she says, what do you mean? I said, I went to Hong Kong last year in third grade. And she wouldn't fix it. And I'm still mad about it. <laughs> I guess, you know, you know what? I guess in, in many ways we're more alike than I even realized. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I can hold a grudge that way as well. I, I, one of the things that's fascinating about the, uh, the very nice – and it's so great to do a podcast that people send you free stuff. I can't I, – I, you know, it's just a wonderful thing. But one of the things I find fascinating is that in the package it's also – there's a reproduction of the first edition of the Overstreet Price Guide. And in comparison, this is – it's a pamphlet in comparison. Yeah, it's, and, I mean, it's, it's and, a know, decent book. I mean, it's 100, is, 200 and some odd pages, but it's still 28. And here's the stunning thing. That was actually staple bound in the original. There was no square bound copy. So that is actually thicker than the original. That's the only thing we couldn't replicate without going crazy price wise. Mm-hmm. Now, the fun part is if you were to take that number one and that number 50, and sit to sit down and compare the top books in it. Oh yeah, well I already top. started looking. Uh, I went back and I was looking at uh, Amazing Spider-Man because that that is my main That's primary series. Title, sure. Yes, uh, and it's it's always been so. There's no reason to have a change on that. But uh, in what is it? Nineteen seventy. Was it seven seventy? Uh, Amazing Spider-Man number one. Where is it? I got to find it. Is Amazing Fantasy, Amazing Man. Wait a minute. Amazing Ghost Stories. There we go. Amazing Spider-Man, number one. In Mint, $16. Yes. All right. What do, what do you think is the top of the guide in that book? What issue? I would think Action Comics, number one. Yeah. Take a look at that one. And I'm sure I looked at it back in, you know, back in the day, but I did not look at it just now. Action Comics, number one. Well, compare, you know, Spider-Man number one is $16 in Mint. Yeah. Action Comics number one, quite a bit more in Mint, but $300. $300, and that is the top of the guide in that I- that issue. Uh, number two is Detective 27 uh, at 275 There are, I don't know, uh, a half, half dozen books at $100. Uh, maybe, maybe it's more than that. Uh, but it really is just... It really is just a, uh, a super fun uh, way to look at it and say, wow. Well, when I, when I had the fifth edition, uh, at that time, if, if Action Comics was $300 in, the, in 1970, in 1975, maybe it was five or $600. I doubt that it was much more you than know, that. It, you know, I don't know the speed at which it accelerated. It might, I have, don't been think faster, it, it might have been faster than a speeding bullet. But, I, don't, I don't think it was quite that fast back then, but I do remember when I had that price guide, I remember as many kids can of, of our age, yeah. my dad lamenting the fact that he once owned that book and his mom had thrown it out on him. My, uh, my but even dad, then, I may, it may have been as much as $1,000 in the, in the yeah. guide. Uh, it's funny. I've got a number. I've got a number six in the other room, and I'll, I'll take a look at that and see because now, now it's piqued my curiosity. But I uh, – my dad threw away Marvel one and torch one. And it's not, I'm not saying that they would have survived the wartime paper drives, but my dad had scarlet fever pre antibiotics. His mom was a nurse by training. 
So they weren't they weren't surviving anyway. They were getting tossed out. So it's not like it would have changed things. But I, I actually then years later was there to witness the transaction for the pay copy of Marvel one, uh, mm. which had all the notations of what the creators were paid in it. Um, uh, and that was uh, in excess of three hundred thousand dollars at the time. And, you know, that's a decade and a half or more ago. And so now and now that's entered the uh, uh, the million dollar club, too. So got to wonder at what point, you know, a non collector uh, such as my dad, you know, seeing the price of Action Comics, number one, if, if it had survived. Excuse me. At what point would he have said, I can't turn this down, I have to sell it? Yeah, of uh, course. And, and then, you know, eventually he would have regretted it because of the way it's just increased it, it, in value at a, at a ridiculous it, you rate. Get a, you get into time value of money. What's it worth to have the money now? And what do you do with it? Uh, you, you know, the, I've only ever regretted two pieces that I sold. One, the, uh, the wonderful uh, Randy Bowen Dr. Doom statue. That you mentioned, Tommy Maletta. Tommy got me another copy of it eventually, uh, and uh, and he was good to get things. If you needed something, he'd find it. If you told him and gave him a list, he he bird dog it. And uh, I used to own J.G. Jones cover to Defiance Great Grimmix number zero, which was a polybag giveaway with Hero Illustrated. Mm-hmm. And it was it was either the first or one of the first. And I, I think he and I worked out that it might have been his first cover. Um, and I just we were doing a, uh, a custody fight for uh, in Rosina's family that we were supporting. And oh, I, I sold that. I, yeah, I sold some stuff. And I've always re- I've always regretted that piece went. The description I wrote was so good. I looked at it in an auction catalog and I almost bid on it. That's, you know, when you know you need to step back. When you're when you wrote the description for the item that you are selling and you still want to bid on it. So <laughs> I guess it speaks volumes for your your capa- capabilities as a writer. No, it just proves that anybody anybody can get emotionally involved. That's all it proves. <laughs> Yeah, I'd love to believe I'm that good a writer, but come on, <laughs> that's just that's just mentally deficient. <laughs> well, let's let's talk a little bit about your writing because uh, sure, I, I I I am fascinated uh, when we cover books on the show, when we deal with licensed properties, and that's something you know we mentioned earlier, and I wanted to talk to yeah. you about it a little bit uh, because I I just find it to be very interesting when we review them. To think about what are the constraints that the writer had? What are you know? What kind of directives is he getting from uh, behind the scenes as far as what they do? So I'm going to take you to the property that I'm more familiar with because, as I've said, I'm really not as familiar with Stargate as I could be. Yeah. Uh, but 24 is something where I watched year after year after year. Uh, so so when when you came on as a writer for 24, what type of directives did you have did they and did they seek you out or did you present them with a uh a a proposal that's a great question man and i love talking about this i just finished watching uh i just binged 24 again uh it it, it is very rewatchable uh i i just i just totally love that show even the stuff that is ham-fisted and mistakes 
And even when Jack says one more time, where's the damn bomb? Uh, I don't, I, I just love that show. And uh, how that came about was uh, Ted Adams at the time and everybody at IDW uh, had started publishing CSI as comics. And they took the neat approach of, you know, having one artist do the standard scenes. And then when they got into the tech forensic stuff, another artist would illustrate those scenes. And it was really cool. And I, I was uh, roommates with my co-writer at the time, Mark Haynes. And I said, man, if they can do CSI as a comic. We can do 24 as a comic. And he goes, you think so? So we cooked up a story. And it was a pitch for a miniseries called 24-7. And it was a seven-issue series. And it was a prequel to season one. And we went to uh, Jeff Marriott, who was the uh, editor-in-chief at IDW at the time, and pitched him on it. They didn't have the license. They went and got the license because of our pitch. Okay, that's very cool. And it was, I mean, particularly because even at that point, I'm known for being the Overstreet guy. Nobody knows me as a comic book writer guy, you know? So that was a big thing to go in there. And, of course, we were super confident because 24-7 was a pretty badass title. Uh, And, uh, and like, literally, here's the title. Give us a check. Uh, (laughs) And and it wasn't quite quite that arrogant, but... Uh, considering our uh, lack of track record, uh, we, we were pretty confident going in. And Jeff was a great editor, and uh, they went and got the license. They liked the, they liked the pitch a lot. Uh, in the interim, uh, they had also signed up the Shield, which, while critically wonderful, I mean superb, and Jeff was writing a miniseries of that. Um, I think FX Cable was in about twelve and a half homes at that point. So when the numbers came back on that, uh, I got a personal call from Ted Adams saying that they were pulling the plug on 24. And the funny thing is that in, in, in the entertainment world, and it's a lot of this has crept into comics, nobody's willing to tell you no. Nobody wants to be the negative person. Nobody wants to take responsibility for anything. Ted calling and telling me that it was over, I've always held him in the highest esteem because of that. You know, and so then I'd gone home to uh, Texas for Christmas, see my parents. And Jeff called and said, hey, we're thinking about trying to do some one shots. You know, because we already paid for the license. And I said, "Okay, we could do that. And the constraint that was put on us, and I do think that this was probably from Ted because it it. not something that the, a creator would do, which was 48 pages, two pages per hour. I would have rather skipped a bunch of hours or compressed some time on a certain page. You know, like it's easy. It's easy to figure out. You put a guy in a flight for three hours. You just bought, you know, like that's one panel right there. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, but I guess, you know, I, I, I guess just to, to play devil's advocate, yeah. that is more in line with the TV show. Cause the TV show, at least in the early seasons, they did have the, the late, you know, re- rebooting of it. Yeah. But in the early seasons, they never skipped an hour. In fact, they never yeah. skipped a minute, uh, well, except while, while they were in commercial. Yeah, absolutely. They did skip the, yeah, the minutes while they're in commercials, but that's about, that's about it. Now, the, the fact is that that's why 
it should have been a longer mini series. You know, this is this is form dictating function or function dictating form. Yeah. You know, um, we did two of them that way. We did 24 one shot, which was the first one. Great Renato Geddes artwork. And then we did 24 stories, which was the second one. Then we did for the third one. We did uh, 24 Midnight Sun and the constraints were off so we could jack around with the timeline a bit. Uh, a little bit of compression. We didn't blow off any hour or anything else like that. But again, we and we got Renato on that one, and not only did he uh, he inked and colored himself on that one, and it was a little bit like having a Tim Bradstreet graphic novel, man. It was that really freaking cool. And we met him, uh, uh, I don't know, a year later, and he looked like he was about 14. And, and it just made me so mad that the guy was that talented that young. But uh, uh, and then we eventually did do 24 Nightfall, uh, which was an abridged version of our seven issue miniseries that we had originally pitched. So now, now how, how did the artwork? How did, well, first, how did the artist get hired? Do I mean, were you involved in that process? No, not at, not at all. We were definitely we were definitely freelancer gun for hire guys. Uh, they treated us very nicely, but we didn't have, we didn't have any, we didn't have any say in that, that kind of stuff. And then how, how, like how detailed scripts did you present for that? By my standards now, they would be grossly insufficient. Uh, they were probably, they probably increased in specificity after there was a mistake in number one that I, it was really my fault that I actually caused the page to have to be redrawn because I thought I had explained something very well and I hadn't. But the plus side is that like any licensed comic, we're dealing with known environments. We're dealing with the characters are going to need to look like the characters. The way they talk needs to sound like the way they talk. Then they, you know, they, they don't carry bazookas. They carry sidearms or machine guns or whatever, you know, that we've given them. Uh, in terms of the settings of the comics, that was really up to us and provide detail that might, that might help. Uh, it was a really great experience. The Fox people, we got copied on the email we weren't supposed to see. And it was a them to going to IDW saying, your guys nailed it. And we ended up meeting a bunch of people from the show and they told us they read the comics. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And, uh, it was, uh, it was really cool. I, uh, uh, I ended up writing the, uh, the season four trading cards as a result of that too. That's the only time I ever wrote trading cards. So now you have that experience under your belt. Yeah. And then you move on to eventually do Stargate, which again, I'm not as familiar with the property, but, what was the difference in how you set up to do that? Like what, what experience did you take from 24 that you said, I don't want this to repeat itself. So I need to get control of what? Oh, wow. That's a great question. And the answer is there's absolutely nothing that was bad at Fox. It was other than the fact that we wanted to do more. And that was, you know, IDW bottom, you know, bottom line, dollar decision we wanted to do more 
and we would have, I would have kept on doing them. I'd still be doing them if they'd let me. You know, Jeff, I I love doing my own stuff. I'm gonna own it. I don't care if I don't make a, if I don't make a lot of money at it because I I got to tell these stories anyway. You know, they they got to get out of my head or I'm gonna drive myself bonkers. But um, Jack Bauer is one of those characters. Uh, it was the first comic script that I didn't draw for myself. My, my art's horrible. I wouldn't ever share it with an artist, but I have to draw things occasionally. So I know what I'm trying to describe to the artist. And I didn't because Jack Bauer's voice was so strong and the intensity of the series was what it was. It was just that easy to sit there. And if you, and honestly, if you can't do Jack Bauer's voice, you need to not write 24. (laughs) Yeah, very true. You know, so moving on to Stargate, again, something Mark and I are both big fans of. And one of the failings or great things about our team team up has always been we don't work on anything the same way as we worked on the last thing. It's just, you know, there was stuff where on 24, like we plotted intensely plotted together. But I might write the whole issue. There was there was a period where he was really deep at work. So we plotted it together, and it that you know has both our credit on it. But I but I wrote the issue. Other ones where he wrote the back half and I wrote the front half, and then we reworked. You know, and and other other things like that. Stargate, same thing really. Uh, Mark is a super detail oriented, a continuity guy. I'm like the continuity on 24 because it's so much closer to the real world. Continuity on 24 is really easy for me. Continuity on Stargate, where we're overlapping, we're, we're keeping track of three series in our head, even though we were only writing two of them, Stargate Atlantis and Stargate Universe. Uh, it was much more constrained by the licensor. In, in what way was it constrained? That's, that's, I find that to be very interesting. Um, first off, the Stargate universe, almost everybody had likeness approval, which is a great way to get your artist to kill himself. Um, secondly, on Atlantis, they wouldn't let us use Jack O'Neill, even though he appeared on the show, for small scenes because they didn't want to go to him for approval about small stuff. So we kept on finding ways for Jack O'Neill to be invisible and other stupid stuff like that, be on the radio and and, and things like that. There was a, it was a lot more jumping through hoops where the Fox people appeared to trust us more because we demonstrated, honestly, uh, I think that their trust was well-placed and I, I, I'm sure I can't say that without ego, but it's with as little as possible. We just demonstrated that, that we knew the material as we did on Stargate to less of an effect. Now, I, I, again, you know, we've done a lot of licensed products over the years and I find it interesting. And, and I think, you know, you talk about uh, how an artist would want to kill himself because of the likeness approval of the actor. I think it's got to be even harder when the licensing agreement does not include the ability to make the character look like the actor. 
Oh boy, is that is that funky? You mean because uh, in that I, situation, I think you have to make the reader feel it's the actor, but you can't have the actor yeah. say, "Hey, that's me." Yeah, that's absolutely absolutely true. One of the things uh, I don't remember if it's the original or one of the sequels or something like that. Um, Tops hat was about to go to press, and they found out that they didn't have on, on a, one of the Jurassic Parks. And they found out they didn't have likeness rights for Jeff Goldblum. And my buddy Charlie Novinsky, who's a great guy with the Hero Initiative, uh, went through and penciled mustaches onto him. And I think he missed a few. <laughs> but, you know, there's great stories like that, man. And uh, we do a licensed comics panel at San Diego, you know, like when you have San Diego, um, every year. And Charlie was on last year, and we talked about that a little bit. And um, I will tell you, my favorite story about likeness rights was Battlestar Galactica, original series. Marvel didn't know they had the rights to the to the, that because Universal told them we don't you don't have likeness rights. Rob Liefeld, when he was publishing it was told he didn't have likeness rights. We talked to Richard Hatch when my buddies and I were publishing Battlestar Galactica about four years before it would have been cool to publish it, Battlestar Galactica. Uh, when we were publishing it, we talked to Richard Hatch and he goes, yeah, we all signed likeness deals. So why, why would they do that? Seriously, big companies don't know who what's going on. I had a great conversation with Mike Richardson talking about a Disney property that he had to convince them they owned. It's crazy. You would you would think they'd be keenly aware of everything they. I own. mean, particularly with Disney, who are such great stewards of their properties. I mean, Disney, whether whether you like or don't like Disney, they are good stewards of their properties, and they didn't even know. Matter of fact, they literally tried to tell them that was somebody else. <laughs> crazy. All right. What else should we hit on before we call it a night, Jeff? Well, I think I think the the, the thing about licensed comics uh, to talk about them more broadly, um, it's really if you look at it the right way, and I think this is the right way. If you love the property, like I love Stargate, I like all the shows. You know, Stargate Universe. My my friend Ming Na Wen was on Star Trek uh, Stargate, and I so I got to write or I got to write her character. You know, that's pretty cool. And I, that, was, that was cool. I put her on the price guide cover once, too, because she's like Agent Melinda May. Uh, and so she's uh, standing behind Captain America fighting the hordes of Hydra on uh, Greg Land's cover on price guide 45. Um, but in all seriousness, it's no different than writing a company owned superhero. You're not going to get to do whatever you want to do with your favorite Spider-Man. You're, you're going you're going to be constrained by the corporate stewards of that character. And that is as it should be. And I think that licensed comics are effectively the same thing. Uh, you are now you've got a couple layers more of bureaucracy because you're dealing with your editor at your company. You're dealing with their approval people and you don't know how many layers of that there, there are going to be. But it's not going to be that many more unless you're talking about maybe Lucasfilm or something, uh, then, then it would be just going through a normal comics editorial process for a big company. 
uh, one of the big two. And, you know, and that's why, like, when you do Zombie Proof or Vampire PA or McAnderson Company, in all seriousness, there's a lot of freedom there because I can do whatever I want because they're mine, you know? But at the same time, I don't view licensed comics as, as a lot different. Uh, you know, I've, I've only got one experience working for the big two. I did a Blue Beetle story for DC. And uh, I was using all three, you know, Golden Age, Silver Age, and Modern. And in eight pages, too. I felt like that was an accomplishment. Uh, but it really... You know, it was their job to say, well, this character wouldn't do that. You can't do that. And that would be the same for a licensing approvals person is like they would never do that. You know, he's a vegetarian or whatever. Um, I think that one of the things that's really incumbent on the people who aspire to write good licensed comics is know and love your material. And if you don't, don't take the gig. Same thing I said about Jack Bauer earlier. If you don't, don't get Jack Bauer's voice, if it doesn't come to you in your head, that's not your comic. You need to you need to not write that. I, I don't disagree with that at all. Uh, but I think that that you could put that same axiom on, you know, if you're writing Spider-Man or Blue Beetle. Well, or it's that, that, well. exactly, but exactly my point. But uh, but I do think you are potentially, at least potentially looking at a different audience when you do a licensed product because yeah, sure. you, you you have people potentially reading it who aren't necessarily comics fans, oh, but might be a fan just of that property. Yeah, I think that that's, I think that that's, uh, Paul, I think that that's right on. Um, you never know when you're going to have that experience where maybe you get somebody to try other comics. You know, so there's some responsibility on your shoulder like that. I'll tell you that after years and years and years of going to comic book conventions, I went to a Stargate convention in 2018 in Vancouver. And my co-writer, Mark, wanted me to go enough that he paid my way out and he paid for the hotel room. And we had one book with two covers. We had the first Stargate Atlantis trade paperback. Uh, we didn't want to slog all the, you know, we didn't want to slog the uh, individual issues through customs in Canada. So we just did that as many as we each could carry. And with those book with two covers, I made more money at a convention than I ever did. I literally paid him back out of the table money. For a, you know, a uh, New York to Calgary round trip and four days in a uh, uh, Airbnb out of the table money. I way better than I ever did at any show as a creator. And there was maybe 500 people at this show. Wow. And so sometimes when you're with that right audience and you know what? I've got five or six of those people that regularly follow my other comic stuff now. So, yeah, I, I totally take your meaning, meaning on that. But then, you know, just as we're talking about it, I'm, I'm starting to think, you know, my, my mind is always racing for better or for worse. And I'm starting to wonder if there is, isn't a correlation now as these comic properties have become big screen properties 
if it almost doesn't reverse the trend and now uh you know now now you have people who are looking to read these books who were not pulled in by the comics but pulled in by the movies so it's almost similar to licensed properties now yeah i think listen i i think that there's i think it's more i don't think you know it's just like when we we talk about the political spectrum people talk about left and right i've always believed that it's more of a circle because if you carry some tendencies too far you're going into the other side right so uh and 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 by the way, I just have to say, I loved your anti-political rant about on on Facebook. So I just just wanted to say that for the record. You notice there's no politics on my page. I I'm do, very, and I appreciate that. I'm a very I'm a very political creature, but I just don't think that that's the place for it. Because why? You know. Well, the next person I meet who saw something on Facebook that changed their political thoughts will be the first. Absolutely. Absolutely. So at any rate, back, but back to your back to your point. I think that the, the spectrum of how we come to. Any particular medium, but, you know, we're talking about comics because we love comics. I don't care how they get there. I just like being aware of the ways. And certainly some of these movies uh, have driven people to comics. There's been some mistakes. There's been some huge mistakes. Like, for instance, at the point where The Dark Knight was doing a billion dollars in box office. And I mean, it was the second film to do that after Titanic. A billion dollars. If you went in at that time, you went into your local comic shop and picked up the current Batman or detective. Bruce Wayne wasn't even Batman. That's bad marketing. But, and I, you know, I guess you, you get into the chicken and the egg thing because... I also don't like seeing the comic creators being constrained and chasing the movie personas of these characters. Dude, dude, this is this is such shallow thinking by this by the studios that own these companies. Um, we've proven beyond any doubt that Hollywood is largely bereft of ideas uh, without without us in terms of big tentpole movies. I, I mean, you know, sure, you can come up with an, an example here and there each year that didn't come from comics. But where did most of the big ones come from? There, the last 10 years. There are stuff, man. We own it. And I hate seeing comics bowing and scraping before movies when it should just be the opposite. We're the IP generators, man. We're the guys who we're the guys who create this stuff. We're the guys who plant the seeds and test the stories you know, in a in a mean, you know, we can do we, my friend Art Holcomb says we could do a three hundred million dollar movie in a, in one comic book. And and I, I take his point greatly because we can test it out. And if it doesn't work and it doesn't hold your attention, don't spend the three hundred million dollars. Be happy that you just spend four or five thousand. You know, we can road test. We can road test anything. Now, I believe in doing comics for their own thing. Totally happy. Excuse me. I'm totally happy if somebody wants to wants to turn McCandless and company into a TV series. I, I know how the first three seasons go. So I'm, I'd be totally happy with that. Don't get me wrong, but I do them because I want to do comics. Totally. You agree. Don't, yeah. don't mean to sound all virtuous and all that, but that's, that's, that's the nut of it. I've got, I've got a great job. I love doing the overstreet books. Uh, and I, 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 most people who are writers and artists are slaving away at jobs. They hate. Yeah, 
I might be more productive. I might be more productive if I hated my job, but I don't. I work with I worked with the top cover artists in the business and talk about comics all day and I get paid for it. And that's pretty freaking great. Yeah, well, I, I have a handful of people who I call friend who I can say they love their job. And you're 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 on that list. So it, it is, I'm, uh, I'm glad to be there, man. It, it is something that I, I totally respect. I, you know, the rest of the world, myself included, uh, a lot of them hate their jobs. I do not hate my job, but I have my ups and downs. There's, you know, uh, you know, I well, can't say every day is, I love working. Yeah, this, this is the thing. This is the thing. Uh, Rosina, uh, my better half, said this to me a long time ago. If you like your job three days out of five, you like your job. And every job, man, every job, including mine, which I dearly love, some days it's a job. There's a reason they pay you. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, and the comment I've had over the years is I don't care what your job is. Your job could be making love to beautiful women. After you've done it long enough, there's going to be a day where you're going to get up and say, you know what? I don't feel like going to work today. Yeah. So that's, that's there is nature. no job. Human there is nature, no brother. job. That, that, you know, you're going to want to do every single day for the rest of your life. That's but it. but if like like I think Rosine is a wise woman. And if she says that uh, three out of five is, is a good uh, cutoff mark, I think she's probably pretty accurate with that. Well, that's, that's absolutely it. Paul, I can't thank you enough for the chat, man. I, I really appreciate you spending the time on, on my stuff. Oh, it's my pleasure. Why don't you uh, before we do sign off, why don't you just give everybody a quick uh Pimping of your material again before, uh, you know, let them know what, what to find and where to find it. Absolutely. On Indiegogo right now, McCandless and Company Crime Scenes is how it's, uh, is how it's listed. Uh, you will find it accompanied by McCandless and Company uh, Insecurities, the special edition. Uh, we've got the Billy Tucci cover. We've got the Amanda Connor cover. And for Insecurities special edition, we have this brilliant James Nelms cover. Uh, we've got all sorts of good add-ons of my other stuff. Uh, Indiegogo exclusives from Vampire PA, uh, signed editions. Uh, we just added the Bedtime Stories uh, signed issue from uh, Best Comics and uh, added 15 of them on there that you can get as an add-on. I and, got that one already. And, uh, <laughs> well, that's it. And uh, uh, we've got a few other things coming up. There will be a, uh, a, a double-sized Bedtime Stories issue uh, sometime soon. Uh, the last story for it just went to the letterer, Mar my letterer, Marshall Dillon, uh, and uh, not sh quite sure when that's on the schedule, but it won't be too far off. And then in uh, February, we'll have uh, uh, Kickstarter or Indiegogo, don't know which of them yet, for my first novel. Uh, it's a mystery novel called Second Wednesday. I've decided to become the uh, the Jessica Fletcher of my hometown, here's Texas, <laughs> uh, and, you know, they're... In recent years, in recent years, their their murder rate there has really skyrocketed. It's something like three quarters of a person a year now, um, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna up that the is, body count. That is uh, skyrocketing. Yeah, yeah. So at least three quarters of a person a year, uh, and it's a it's a it's it's a great town right between Dallas and Fort Worth, and uh, my mom still lives there, and uh, I probably am probably the person who spends the most time on the Hearst Police Department's website trying to learn their policies so my characters make sense. Uh, and uh, uh, But that's coming out. Uh, it's got a great, oh boy, does it have a great cover. Joe Jesko. Um, 
did that. And we're going to have a, a special edition that'll be on the crowdfunding one that will have spot illustrations. And uh, I can say that two of them, uh, one is Billy Tucci, uh, and the other is a, a veteran comic book artist who hasn't done comics for years. And I am thrilled to have her back in comics, and that's Mary Wilshire, mm-hmm. uh, who is just uh, an, an incredible talent. A lot of people remember her Red Sonia uh, or maybe some of her Disney work, but I, the Red Sonia stuff really stuck in my mind. And uh, she influenced a lot of female creators uh, uh, to get into the business that are in the business now uh, when she was in in the 80s. So really tickled to have her. And I've got some other stuff coming up. Great. Great interior design work by Don Guzzo, who's a Marvel bullpen vet- veteran, and uh, pretty psyched about it. Okay, it's only about, uh, only about 150 years in the making. There's all of that, and there is the Overstreet stuff, too. Uh, again, you know, I hadn't picked up the price guide in years, and I, I, I'm, like, thrilled that you sent me this stuff. This is just so much fun to page through that I got to tell people, if you haven't looked at this stuff in a long time, you may want to check it out, especially the uh, Overstreet at 50 is, is very, very cool. I, I, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you like it. I, I look forward to further comments on it. And uh, I will say that on the Overstreet front, we have that coming out on uh, November 4, next Wednesday. Uh, and then in the spring... We will have uh, the grading guide, uh, the Overstreet Guide to Grading Comics. Uh, and that's the first time we're ever going to offer a hardcover edition of that one. Uh, and, and I think it's going to be a real nice edition of that book. That's, our, that's always been our second biggest seller. It's a perennial. It doesn't, it's not you know, sexy because it doesn't have prices in it, but it is a vital, great tool for learning how to grade or refreshing yourself on that. And then in the fall, uh, we're going to do one. I'm, I'm still not quite sure about the title of it, but it is going to be the Overstreet Comic Book Price Guide to Lost Universes. And we're going to drill down on uh, Milestone 1.0 and Defiant and Early Valiant and mm-hmm. talk about these things. And, of course, you know, the great thing about comics is it may be a lost universe, but it can also come back. Uh, and have seen that uh, time and again. Yeah. And, and so but we're going to have some fun with that. We've done a lot of interviews. For this book that'll that'll supplement the pricing and uh, and a lot of images that we have of these things and uh, uh, I think it's gonna it's gonna be a blast it's a lot of work I've got a, a one of our regular contributors Scott Brandon has already done a bunch of work on it I've got uh, other people contributing scans and uh, like we've got uh, basically all the new universe books you know cool and cool. Uh, great uh, great behind the scenes research on it too that's all good stuff. So, you know, I look forward to seeing more of it. And please feel free to post on our uh, Facebook page any of the stuff. And Oh, that'd be uh, great, man. Thanks, Paul. Or, you know, you feel free to send it to me and I'll post it. Or if you want to just go on yourself and post it, you're more than welcome to. Uh, but, uh, well, you know, everybody so. should be checking that stuff out. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to come on with me and talk about all this stuff. It's it's always a lot of fun whenever we uh we get a chance to chat. And as, as usual, I'm at no loss for words. Well, that's that's one of the fun things about talking to you. So everybody who's right, listening, brother. thank you for listening in. Jeff, thanks for coming on, and uh, we'll talk again soon. All right, great, man. Thanks, Paul.
Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.